When is the last time you thought about being happy? I'm not talking about the last thing you remember doing before this pandemic that made you smile. I guess I'm asking something that's more profound and something more essential. What do you do to make yourself happy right now, even in the middle of a pandemic? How do you soothe yourself even now? Even in the best of times, it's unusual to take time to really think about what makes you happy. But these days, I'm just grateful that there's even a window of time when the COVID of it all isn't in some way on my mind. And there's so much to worry about in this moment. The social fabric is fraying in a way we haven't seen in a generation. Protests continue, but it's hard not to get cynical and worry they won't bring about actual change for Black people. And I know some version of that stress, that sadness, is how so many feel right now. So I wanted to talk to someone who knows a thing or two about happiness and how to cultivate it, even in these strange times. But I think just like with so many aspects of our life, we're realizing what really matters and what's really worth it. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Dr. Lori Santos is something of an expert in being happy. I'm a professor of psychology at Yale University and host of the Happiness Lab podcast. Lori teaches and does research like a normal professor, but a few years ago, she added something new. She moved on campus, which is how she started noticing a troubling trend among the students. I really interact with them closely. And honestly, when I took on the new role, I didn't like what I was seeing. I met students who were just regularly too depressed to function or, or who were experiencing, you know, anxiety to the point of having panic attacks many days. Um, you know, I saw suicidality. Like, it just wasn't what I remember, like, from my own college experience. Lori wasn't just imagining things. This wasn't a case of small sample size theater. In fact, the national statistics bear this out with over 40% of college students nationally saying that they're too depressed to function and over 60% saying that they're overwhelmingly anxious or feel very lonely. Meaning this isn't limited to Lori's dorm or to Yale students for that matter. It's happening everywhere. And Lori says it's because there's a different kind of pressure now than when she was in college. You know, it's get perfect grades, get into the perfect school, you know, get a perfect job with a huge salary, you know, buy lots of stuff. I think this is the kind of ethos that we're sold from our culture and capitalism and all these things. But I think my students were on the winning side of this ethos. You know, they'd just gotten the kinds of grades that could get them into an Ivy League school, and they were still feeling kind of empty. And this emptiness had grown into a crisis. Not to overuse the term, but it was something of a pandemic of loneliness, anxiety, depression. And Lori was seeing it up close, a new problem. And at a time when the ways people used to cope aren't as present as they used to be. I think a lot of these answers used to come from culture or come from religion. I think we have an ethos about what you should be doing to be happy, but it's one that at least the science would suggest is just kind of wrong. And Lori thought that science might be able to help. In the past few decades, the field of positive psychology 
has not only come into existence, it's exploded. The basic premise is that happiness is not just a state of being, it's something you can work on, get better at. One of the first steps is identifying misconceptions about how to attain happiness. Here's Lori on her podcast talking about some of them. We think that the good things in life, being rich, feeling healthy, having lots of friends, lead us to feel happier. And they do, to a certain extent. But it turns out that the causal arrow goes in the other direction, too. Feeling happy leads to good life outcomes. She also focuses on solutions to those misconceptions, on ways we can overcome barriers to feeling happy. I'll be honest, at first, some of them sound a little bit obvious, like sleeping better, savoring the moment, focusing on what makes us happy. But there is actually a method involved, a way to maximize the effects. A lot of it seems to come down to being intentional about your own happiness. How do we make the most of this savoring activity? Well, first off, you just have to take part in a positive experience, and then you have to savor during that experience. Take a second to realize why it makes you happy. Take a second to realize why it makes you happy. I've heard it said before that the best way to feel sad is to try and feel happy. Lori is kind of saying the opposite. You have to at least think about it. Sometimes you have to make a point of prioritizing your well-being. The same is true when it comes to another happiness lever, developing relationships. Surprisingly, focusing on the more shallow ones. Again, we have to try. We have to put in a little work. We just need to connect with other people and not just our friends and family members. We also need to make the effort to connect more with strangers, the random people around us in lines and on our commute. They matter more than we think. And that's the kind of stuff that Lori wanted her students to know about. So she decided to offer a class. She called it Psychology and the Good Life. My, my goal is like, maybe if I could teach students about the science of happiness, they'd put some of those practices into effect in their own lives and they'd, you know, get a little happier or at least reduce the mental health crisis that, they, that many of them were facing. Something about that offering struck a chord. A quarter of the student body, 1,200 students registered for the class. Lori had to move it from a regular classroom to a concert hall. It's the most popular class in Yale's history. Each night, students have happiness homework, meditate for 10 minutes, sleep eight hours, do something kind, and write down five things that you're grateful for. But don't think it's an easy A. Of course, this was all before COVID-19. Since the world shut down in March, it's not just college kids anymore. Everyone is feeling down. A lot of the things that used to bring us joy, from restaurants to vacations to hugs, so much of that is gone. And we tried to replace it with the wrong things, at least at first. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was, at least on social media, what seemed to be like a movement towards self-improvement. That even as the world was falling apart, this might be our shot to eat better, read more, exercise a few more times a week, become more efficient versions of ourselves. In a really scary moment, that's how a lot of us reacted. We thought we could make ourselves feel better just by making ourselves better. It's kind of twisted if you think about it. So many of us are searching for answers about what we can do to feel like we're flourishing, to feel like we're happier. And many of us are searching in part because we've doubled down on what our culture has told us to do, and it's not working. 
this has come up on Telescope before, that it's kind of a ridiculous time to worry about self-improvement when the moment is really about survival. What's going on right now is heavy and hard in so many different ways. And it's impacting our capacity to be happy. Yeah, I mean, there's no two ways about it. This is awful. I mean, the pandemic is, first of all, just at the very basic level, completely changing everyone's routines. You know, we're creatures of habit. When we get that stuff messed up, it's awful. But that's not all. The pandemic also hurt our chance to interact with other people. Those little conversations with strangers in line at the market or on the subway that Lori talked about, sure, sometimes they're awkward, but they're also important. And now they're gone. Instead, we're spending a lot of time with our nuclears, our immediate loved ones, and nobody else. It's testing the boundary conditions of our relationships by making families kind of hang out together. You know, you might have said, oh, I wish I could get a couple weeks just to hang out with my husband and my kids. But when it really happens in the middle of a global pandemic, not so good, right? And people are facing real existential threats from job loss to, to actual loss of life, right? You know, this is no joke. It's also brought to light the ugliest parts of the world that we live in and forced many of us to talk about those parts and to think about them more than ever before. We've seen a lot of inequality, both in terms of racial inequality and just kind of income inequality, just completely unmasked. Like, who counts as essential? Who gets the privilege of getting to avoid this pandemic by how they work and what income they make and so on? I think that there might be room to kind of redesign what we count as important and essential, um, rethink how equal we want people's pay structures and safety structures to be. I think all of those things are part of the conversation that people are talking about. So here we are, in collective crisis mode. What are we supposed to do to, you know, not be sad all the time? I think all of us know kind of from public health messaging what we should be doing to protect our physical health right now. You know, we need to wash our hands a lot and socially distance and stay home and such. But I think a lot of us are really struggling with what we can do to protect our mental health. There's just no easy way to wash your brain 10 times a day. Lori's been thinking a lot about this, and so have many others. And many folks want a strategy that's really evidence-based, which I think is pretty cool. Okay, I'm listening. These simple interventions we can use to feel better, both in terms of experiencing more positive emotion and less negative emotion, but also in terms of feeling a little bit more satisfied with our lives, even if we're in circumstances that aren't so great. One way Lori says you can improve satisfaction on the regular these days is to be aware of your emotions, including all the bad ones. Really notice how you're feeling, which is easier said than done. Oftentimes when we experience negative emotions, we try to like push them away or we don't notice that they're there. So they kind of manifest in all kinds of yucky things, you know, kind of being grumpy with your spouse or kind of like a little bit more upset with your kids than usual. I know the feeling. I have a two-year-old and it's hard to be patient 100% of the time with him, with my wife. Hard not to think about what COVID means for us as a family, and especially for him, whether he's going to miss an important year of preschool or not get to see his grandparents enough. I won't lie, I hate it. I think in this moment, there's so much uncertainty and so much anxiety and so many moments of kind of fear and yuckiness. We need to kind of be with those and notice them rather than try to push them away. And I think uh, techniques that allow you to be a little bit more mindful, you know, just kind of notice, recognize, like, oh, I'm experiencing a yucky thing right now. 
accept it and kind of investigate and be with it, those kinds of techniques can be incredibly powerful. Okay, I can do that. Let's see. I'm annoyed when one too many things are happening at once. When I'm on a phone call with a staff member, for example, my wife is giving me directions and my son is squealing in the back seat because, well, that's what two-year-olds do. I usually ignore it and move on to the next thing, but I'll be annoyed this time. Okay, and then? Once you're there with your emotions, especially if they're really negative and and kind of really anxiety-filled, they're just simple mechanisms that you can use to regulate those uh, through your breath. (sighs) Lori says stress activates your body's fight-or-flight mechanism. Your muscles want to tighten up and steal energy away from the rest of your body, the rest of your needs. But breathing? It's our best move sort of a physiological button, really. You know, oftentimes when people are really hyped up or mad, people will say, you know, take a deep breath, which sounds really pedantic. It's true. It sounds condescending, but it works. The science says so. It can just, like, give a momentary chill out of our sympathetic nervous system, which can really be quite powerful. Lori shared another pretty simple trick with me. Counting your blessings. I think one of the biggest things that works right now in the context of COVID-19 is taking time to really be present and appreciate and savor the good stuff in life. Again, seems obvious, but Lori says it's more applicable than usual these days. I think there's a sense that this pandemic makes us feel like maybe we shouldn't feel joy. You know, people are dying, people are losing their jobs. If you're in a place where you have some privilege and you're, you know, if things aren't so bad, there's this sense that you shouldn't be able to experience the joy from that, right? You know, maybe you should be miserable too. But I think this is exactly the wrong approach. Pretending the happy stuff in your life isn't there, it's a recipe for disaster. It's important to pay attention to what you have so you can be thankful for it. The research really shows that people who experience a lot of gratitude, people who count their blessings, tend to on average be happier than folks that don't. And the simple intervention of forcing yourself to think about things that you're grateful for, you know, scribbling down three to five things that, you know, you consider blessings in your life at the end of the day, those types of interventions can start improving people's well-being in as little as two weeks. Seems easy enough. Okay, I'm going to list some blessings. I'm counting one for my son, who is hilarious, even when his squeals cancel out all other sound, and my wife, who's the best partner I could possibly have. I'm counting one for my team at Neon Hum, and one for the best dog a guy could have. Right, Towns? Social connection matters, and there's no better way to appreciate that than by losing it. Lori thinks we will be less likely to put seeing friends and family on the back burner after the pandemic is over. I think some of us are realizing that the work we do maybe isn't as important as our family members that we're, you know, worried about and caring about so much. Um, And I think that it'll cause us to really, when we re-engage with those activities, again, from like, you know, going to brunch without fear to kind of seeing our elderly parents, you know, without worrying about their health. Like, I think those things will cause us to count our blessings a little bit more. Maybe as things shift back to the way they used to be, we might come back to a greater sense of awareness of how lucky we are. You know, the next time I can just go like plop down in my favorite coffee shop with my latte and my laptop and work without a mask or terror, like that's going to feel really good. I'm going to notice that in a way that I just never, ever noticed it before. For Lori, part of the normalcy will be getting back to campus. 
back to being a college professor and living among her students. But there's a sense that things might not return exactly to normal in the world of higher education, at colleges like Yale especially. There have been a lot of conversations about that, many of them centered around the cost. I heard a statistic recently that increasing cost of higher ed is second only to the increasing cost of healthcare, you know, which is not, you know, a comparison that I think most academics would want. And so I think it's going to force us to really come to terms with what we're offering um, and what that means, because for better or for worse, it might just not be physically safe for students to engage in a lot of the great things they get out of university life. It's giving students pause. And I think we're going to have to ask a really hard question about if that's the case, you know, should they really come back? And as universities grapple with their own plans for reopening, COVID-19 has kickstarted a larger discussion about what exactly students are paying for. You know, so many of my Yale students, uh, when they left over spring break, so Yale, uh, the pandemic sort of hit Yale around the time that students were already away on spring break, and students were basically told, don't come back. You know, so they didn't have a chance to pack up. They didn't have a chance to say goodbye. And many of them were experiencing incredible grief over losing out on that semester. So I think as soon as they get the chance to get an academic education that involves those sorts of social connections and that kind of social contact, you know, I think if anything, people will want to pay more money for that because they realize that that might be the thing they value. But despite all the anxiety around the present and uncertainty about the future, Lori thinks this difficult time could yield a better tomorrow. The pandemic has required us to engage in action that helps our community, you know, to do something nice for the people around us. And I think not all communities have been perfect at this, but this is the kind of collective trauma that can really lead people to become uh, honestly happier on the other side. There's even a fancy academic term for it. There's lots of work about post-traumatic stress, and that's not to diminish it, that that is a real thing. But there's also lots of scientific work showing that you can also get post-traumatic growth, that often after a collective trauma, uh, people end up kind of more resilient. Post-traumatic growth. They end up finding more meaning in life on the other side, and they often wind up with stronger social connections on the other side. And that, I think, is true of the pandemic, but I also think that this could potentially be true of the awful moment we're facing, where it does kind of feel like we've hit this interesting tipping point on racial injustice. You know, police violence has been around, you know, as long as we've had police forces, honestly. But it really feels like the conversation might be changing. It's almost impossible to imagine today that the events of 2020, a year that, exhaustingly, we are only just barely halfway through, could make a happier 2021 and beyond. That's my hope, at least. Thanks to Lori Santos for sharing her wisdom with us. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
Every week we receive emails, messages on Twitter, voicemails from listeners telling us what your lives are like and what you're going through. We want to share one with you. Benjamin Weiner is a first grade teacher in Brooklyn, New York. When remote learning started, he got creative and started making educational videos for his students. He also wrote a class song about learning through Zoom. First grade through a screen. Hold on, Benjamin, what does that mean? It's different, but it's okay. And we can still sing every day. Thanks for sharing, Benjamin. And before we leave you today, a programming note. In keeping with our discussions today about the future of education in a post-COVID world, we're going to spend an entire week talking about that issue. What it's like for children, teenagers, and college students in this moment and in the future, and what education looks like for them now and in the years ahead. So stay tuned for that. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Kate Mishkin. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis and Vikram Patel. Our engineer was Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. If you like this show, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you want to share with us, email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.